0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we'll be reading uh, on down in, into our time. We'll be reading through verses um, verses 1 through 12. Let's pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. We do thank you for your word. We do thank you, Father, that you have begun new creation and you've begun it in us and and in those who embrace Jesus, and we thank you, Father, for uh, your love for us. We thank you that uh, in in this way you loved the world, that you gave your only, your unique Son uh, for our sins. Father, we're thankful for that, and we just thank you for uh, this time. We pray that your Spirit would be among us, uh, powerfully at work in our in our minds and in hearts. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the way Jesus went about defining freedom versus slavery in terms of sonship, his own sonship, and the sonship others can have in him. Those who are sons are free, and those who are slaves are not. There are Isaacs, who are sons of the promise, who receive the inheritance by the promise of God, believing in the God who raises from the dead who raised Abraham's good as dead body and Sarah's good as dead body and gave them a child, a descendant, a seed. And there are Ishmaels, those who are not part of the covenant promises, who persecute the seed, who reject Jesus's words. They are not free, they are slaves. The Isaacs are part of a family that numbers more than the sands of the sea, the stars of heaven, consisting of all the nations who come into the family of God through Jesus. We saw that Jesus and John framed it in this way. Uh, He framed it in a way that said, those who are seeking to kill him are sons of the slave woman, Hagar, like Ishmael. And you are outside of the covenant promise of fulfillment for this reason. You're trying to kill the true seed through whom your father Abraham, if he were truly your father, would be given a seed as great as the stars of the sky. Like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, you are trying to get the inheritance by your own means, in the flesh, as it were, outside the sun, outside of Isaac, outside of Jesus. And you are therefore an illegitimate son, a son of slavery. This is what he was talking to them about. As this line of argument echoes throughout the rest of the book of John, we see that part of the issue for the Jews at this time was that the whole world might go after him, and this could not stand. They wanted their inheritance, the land, for themselves and themselves alone, and they wanted the pagans out, even if for a while they would compromise with Rome against their enemies to remain in power, as seen in their, in their words later. We have no king but Caesar, they said. The pagan nations, but uh, but the pagan nations for the most part can take a hike. They are for sure not getting any of the inheritance belonging to Israel. We will make sure of that. We will kill this man and keep the inheritance for ourselves as the true seed of Abraham. If we don't stop him, we will lose our inheritance. They say, or as John says, they were saying in verses uh, in chapter 11, 48, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. That is, they will swear loyalty to him and not us, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, the temple, and our nation, the land. But they had failed to understand, as I've said repeatedly, and so many still fail to understand today, that the scriptures were coming to pass in a new and unexpected way. The promise of the land and the scriptures was a figure of the whole world that would be inherited and transformed by the true king when God installed him on the throne in Jerusalem. Have a look at Psalm 2. And the temple in their midst was a sign of a new temple built without hands that God had promised to build in the last days in Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and prefigured in Ezekiel's final temple. But it had to happen this way, not to excuse them in their wickedness. They did it out of the rottenness of their hearts, the fruits of their idolatry of land and identity, had come to it uh, uh, to its just end, and they had plunged themselves into darkness. But the scriptures had to be fulfilled, as it is likewise said of Judas later on. In doing so, in rejecting Jesus's claim of messiahship, that he was the that he was sent as God's messenger to God's own people to announce the new exodus from their sins, the arrival of their king who would genuinely put an end to their slavery. By making them sons in him, they had chosen the way of darkness. They had loved darkness rather than light, as John said earlier, because their deeds were evil. They had rejected the light of the world, as we will see in our current passage. In this, too, their ignorance of, the, of their own scriptures is on display. They, this will become more evident as we turn to the following passage. John chapter 9, 1 through 12, the man born blind. Jesus has just escaped the grasp of those in the temple who were, who were trying to uh, get a hold of him after claiming to be the I am of Exodus. As he passed by, John 9, 1 says, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, whose sin, this man or his parents? that he would be born blind. Jesus answered, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and, and made clay out of the spit. And applied, it, applied the clay to the man's eyes. And he said to, to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. So he went away and washed and came back, seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Saloon and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. John's account of Jesus's action with the man born blind Though seemingly simple on the surface is quite complex, alluding to a tapestry of texts that speak of God's deliverance of his people from bondage and his renewal of all creation. New Exodus, new creation. We've seen this before, and this is how John's gospel actually begins with new creation. With the sight of the man blind from birth, though literal um, here in actuality. It is a sign of the sight that the Messiah would give to his people as he begins his new act of creation and new exodus. This recurring theme of giving the blind their sight, present also in the other Gospels, but in different forms, is a reference to or an allusion to multiple texts within Isaiah. And if we miss these, along with the other related texts which speak of light and darkness, like Genesis 1, We will simply affirm that Jesus is a miracle worker without seeing the meaning to which these miracles are pointing. As we know from the rest of John, he structures his book around the signs. This healing of a man born blind is the sixth of seven signs, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead being the seventh and final sign. Isaiah also does this, building his book around signs, and it forms much of the background material and content for John's gospel. Signs have meanings, things they point to, but to what does this sign point? Likely several things, but in particular it points to one thing, or perhaps two in one. Isaiah, the book, is a book about exile and return. Of disobedience and expulsion from the land but with a view to the promises of to the fathers that after being exiled for disobedience there will be a glorious return an exodus that will lead to the fulfillment of the promise to abraham that will give abraham a worldwide family see chapter 55 of isaiah and 66 19 and following in light of the exile which Isaiah the prophet has been warning the people of, Isaiah 35 tells of a time when God will bring about a new exodus. And this new exodus will be nothing less than new creation. It will be a renewal at a level not seen before. It will be such that to talk about it, Isaiah has to use metaphors of creation. Figuratively, it will transform the land of the wilderness into a fruitful rather than dry and unfruitful and joyful place like we do all the time when we describe things and events in the language of war, especially in sports, like crushing them and massacring them and other things. Isaiah uses figurative language to describe what this will look like. And the first sign of this new creation in Isaiah 35 is the blind receiving their sight, and the deaf hearing, and the lame walking, and the tongue of the mute speaking. Yes, these things do literally happen, but they are signs that God is doing this on a large and worldwide scale and in different but wonderful ways through Jesus out into the future until he brings in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to how Isaiah 35 describes it: the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Aravah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind, here it is, will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the arava. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass, will become reeds and rushes. There is a return of the Lord to Zion. And it will be an act of deliverance so great that to speak of it is to speak of it in terms that are no less Uh, A way of of talking about new creation. The land itself will be transformed when God acts on behalf of his people. This healing in John 9 that Jesus performs is, of course, real and, and literal. But it points to something that Isaiah has been communicating all along. Namely, that there is a blindness that Jesus can heal. And through this man's obedience to the words of Jesus, this man receives his sight. This receiving of sight is not simply so that Jesus can claim to be God, but to point to what his ministry was and is about, bringing about the new exodus and the new creation, making things new for humans. How many have experienced this, this renewal of everything in your life? I have. We still have vestiges of the old hanging on for dear life but by and by they fall away like sheep that lose their winter coats with patches hanging on into the summer. New life, and this man in our text does. He receives it, so much so that no one even recognizes him. Let's hope that that's what people say about us after we meet Jesus. All he can say is a man called Jesus did this. That's about all we can say as well. But this is a sign. It's not just Jesus going around being God all over the place, though he is. And it isn't just an example that we should follow where we go around trying to do miracles, though this happens sometimes. It's that Jesus is embodying the return of God to Zion to deliver his people, to give them sight and sound, binding up the hurting and healing those with illness. It is to say, This is the beginning of the new creation that you read about in Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 66. Remember how the book began, the book of John, with a reference to Jesus as light coming into the world, enlightening the world as he comes. God was in Christ, Paul says, reconciling the world to himself. And that is what is happening here. Isaiah's mission to the people to whom he was set was to blind them and to make them deaf, but also to offer deliverance to those who would heed his words. In Isaiah 6, 9 through, uh, 6, 9 through 13, we read, And God said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening and don't perceive. Keep on seeing, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people heavy, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed far away removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. He was sent to blind them and to make them deaf. But this wasn't the final act. New Exodus was and is on the horizon, and Isaiah knew it because the one who had made the promises to the fathers is faithful. Sight and sound would come to those who wait for it. But there's more going on in this text that cumulatively tell us a great deal more about what is signified in this sixth sign in the book of John. The key to understanding the meaning or meanings of this passage is a series of repeated words that provide textual links to passages that are familiar within the scriptures. These include work, day, light, darkness. What do you think of in the scriptures when you hear these words? Let's read 9, 1 through 5 again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? (laughs) Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that The works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What resonances do we hear in this passage? How do we think about them? That's the difficult part. What do we do with them? Let me... I want to say just a little bit about like, Bible study. This is, it's very practical. What, well, it's, it seems to me that that the way that the scriptures do their own work in our lives is by forming networks of echoes, of resonances, forming connections between texts and images that develop into a broader story within our minds. They basically operate on the level of worldview. Forming the worldview by which we operate in the world, and within which we view ourselves. And the most important part of this process of of worldview formation is actually reading the Bible, and reading reading it again, and rereading it, and listening as we read. They do not yield fruit at a glance. Pour over them, abide in these words, and be aware of texts that are surrounding you. Listen for the echoes of Scripture, and the Spirit will, over time, give you insight into what it means and what you are to do with it. This is—it seems to me—this is how this is how a worldview, a biblical uh, worldview, is formed by reading Scripture, listening for the echoes, listening for the connections between the Scriptures, and it will form this this worldview that. Uh, that will, that will get you through the world, right? Uh, that will uh, bring you through uh, relatively unscathed. Perhaps it will even call you to get involved in bringing restoration to the world, in bearing witness to what God is doing and wanting to do in the world. Back to our text. One of the key things that he says here comes in verse five. While I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. What does he mean by this? First, there's the word when. This suggests that there's a time when he will not be in the world. And that would be correct. He has told them all along that he is going to the Father. And that they won't always have him with them. But he's not simply telling them he's leaving. He is telling them something about his mission while he's in the world. That when he is in the world, he is accomplishing the mission of the servant, the mission given to Israel in her calling to be the light of the world. Here, too, there are echoes. What do the scriptures say about the light of the world, this phrase, or about a light to the nations? The phrase light of the world, which Jesus uses in this passage, is uh, multi-referential. At once referring to the light of creation, in him was light. And that light was the light of men, giving light to everyone coming into the world, but also to Isaiah's servant, Israel, who would bring back Israel and become a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Listen to me, O O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the, in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, two things, to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. And he says, it is too small a thing that you should be the servant, be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. There it is so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and I will give you for a covenant to the people to restore the land and to make, inherit, make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth to those in darkness, show yourself along the roads they will feed and their pasture and their pasture will be on all the bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make my, all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, those these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Jesus is the servant. He is Israel while he is in the world and his mission is to bring about the restoration of Israel and to be made by the father into a light to the nations this was israel's calling and now jesus is embodying uh, her calling because that's what the king does he embodies the nation as paul explains in romans 2 through 4 israel's failure to be the servant to the nations the one to whom they were entr- the, one, uh, the ones to whom were entrusted the oracles of god but who were unfaithful in bringing them to the nations. That is, uh, That unfaithfulness is actually the reason for Jesus's coming. Or as he says, concisely near the end of Romans, Romans 15, eight and following, where I say that the Messiah has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles. Uh, And and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. There again, the servant does these two things. He brings back a remnant from Jacob, and he brings in the Gentiles. Paul's message, and that of John as well, uh, is that Israel's unfaithfulness did not thwart the purposes of God to reconcile the world to himself. He would do it through his son, Israel's representative, the true servant, through his death. And Jesus knows this. And this is the point, this is the point, one of the main points I want to make here. Jesus knows what the servant is given to do. He knows the task that is is before him, that he is the light of the world. And this means that he is the embodiment of both Israel and Israel's God as seen in Isaiah 49 and 53. And while he is in the world, this is the mission that is on his mind. The next servant song in Isaiah after chapter 49 tells us the means by which he will do this, his own death, and Jesus knows this too. He has laid out his life and he's bringing it it to pass or the father is bringing it to pass in accordance with the way the servant songs are put in, in the book of Isaiah. This doesn't mean that when he leaves, it is all over Though, The spirit, which he will send from the father, will guide his disciples into all truth. And they too, like him, will bear witness to the truth about Jesus as as the one sent from the father to bring about new creation, to accomplish what Israel failed to accomplish as the servant. Jesus explains this in chapters 15 and 16, as he prepares the disciples for his death 15 verse 8 but this my, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that so then you will be my disciples the fruit the fruit here are the people who will come by the disciples witness you did not choose me he says in verse 16 but i chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in in the name in the father in my name he may give you They will be empowered to do what Jesus is doing through the Spirit's work and power. They are going to be taking over Jesus's mission as the servant through the Spirit's power. John lays out this extended ministry of Jesus through the speech of Jesus with his disciples. But Paul also speaks of it in a more direct way. One of the most interesting passages in Paul is 2 Corinthians 5, 18-6, 10 where within the larger discourse about his and the other apostles' ministry, he describes that ministry in terms of servanthood and reconciliation. First, in 5, 18 through 21, he describes God's God's actions in Christ. If you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, you're welcome to. He describes God's actions in Christ, and then he describes the apostles' extended mission as the embodiment Of God in the world. Then in chapter 6, 1 through 10, he goes on to describe it further as carrying out the ministry of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49. First in 5, 18, 19, and 20, 21, actually, 5, 18, 19, and 21, he describes God's actions in Christ when he says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ, verse 18, the first part. Verse 19, the first part, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And verse 21, and he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering on our behalf. Verse 21a. And these three things are then followed with the apostles mission that comes as a result of God's mission in Christ. First, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the second part of verse 18. Secondly, he committed to us the word of reconciliation, verse nineteen. And thirdly, we have become the embodiment of the faithfulness of God to His promises in Him. That translation, uh, that translation that is given, is a is a translation of the phrase the righteousness of God. We have become the righteousness of God in Him. This simply means in Paul that he has embodied this, that he has become. The servant on behalf of the Messiah. God's actions in Christ are as follows. He reconciled us. He is reconciling the world and he made him a sin offering to do this. God's actions then in the apostles and us by extension, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He committed to us the word of reconciliation and he made us the embodiment of God's faithfulness to his plan for the world. Then he goes on to describe the apostles' work in terms of the servant of God in Isaiah 49. Like Jesus was the servant, so his apostles are also servants of God. And when he does this, he draws on Isaiah 49, the third, the third servant song. He says here, working together with him, in verse uh, chapter six, verse one, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's not saying to them, get saved, but he's saying, join into the, in the plan of God for the world. How do we know what this means? For he says, this is Paul's application, at the acceptable time I've listened to you and on the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no cause for offense in anything, so that, the, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as, and there's the phrase, servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying but yet we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as you hear the echo of Isaiah 53, as as having nothing yet possessing all things. Here. Paul describes his own ministry as an extension of Jesus's ministry as the servant. What am I getting at here? Simply this Jesus in saying that he is the light of the world while in the world is speaking of his vocation as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49 and 53. It is a template. It is a template that he himself is following. He is living it. He is living the life as a servant of the Lord and he will die the servant's death. And Paul and John, I think in his own way is saying, you too, you too are the servant in him. You take part in that mission. Not only that, his actions in making the blind see indicate that the new Exodus is upon them and new creation is beginning through Jesus. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. This is what's going on in this passage. And those with eyes to see it will see it. Those have eyes. Uh, those who have eyes but don't see will not, as we will see in the rest of the chapter. This ministry of making the blind to see is part of his servant ministry. And this ministry has extended to his disciples and those of us who are willing to take it up but there's a practical thing that needs to be addressed in this passage. At the beginning of the passage, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Would we ask such a thing or think it? Would we? We probably would, and we probably have, but should we? It's a common way of thinking because actions do indeed have consequences, some direct, some indirect, but they don't always seem to. It's too simplistic and too neat to fit with reality. It's an easy way of thinking if nothing bad has happened to you. You must be living right, we say, when things are going our way. When we are well-fed and healthy, we can easily conclude that we've been living right and that God is rewarding that right living. Like a slot machine, put in the good, get out the good, put in the bad, get out the bad. But what if something bad happens to us when we are stricken with an illness or some debilitating disease? Are we likely to think this way? Perhaps, but the word of Jesus is that we shouldn't. Things aren't so neat and tidy. The disciples were probably thinking that the iniquity of the fathers is being visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. And perhaps that's true sometimes. That cycle of iniquity continues. But let's not be like Job's friends. Job's friends just knew that he had sinned. He must have somewhere, sometime, even if he wasn't aware of it. They could not fathom that something deeper and more mysterious might be going on. They couldn't fathom that God had already declared Job to be blameless, fearing God and turning away from evil, as we know as the reader from the prologue. That he was demonstrating, that God was demonstrating to the powers, the hasatan, the the Satan, that Job was who he said he was. That he knew him and Job would stand fast in his integrity. Things aren't always so simple. And it takes a certain wisdom to leave that judgment to God, like the psalm this morning and like Psalm 73 does. Jesus here resists any attempts to view God's ordering of the world in this way. Some things just are, but these things can be redeemed. And this is what Jesus is going to do with the situation. Make lemonade out of lemons. Making new creation out of the old. Against the backdrop of the darkness and sometimes cruelty of the world shines the brightness of God's redeeming glory. Where Jesus steps in. Jesus steps in to make the man's eyes see and we too are called to do this with one another to redeem the old and broken creation which can be redeemed that we might truly love one another that we might become one with one another (laughs) joining together in this transforming of our little corners of the world through Jesus's transforming love this is what it's about